There's a massive pile of firewood by the big tree in the tire swing. I'm 10 years old, and somehow I decide to stack it all. Not with my brother, just me. The days are getting colder now, and the grass is stiff with frost when I wake up. It melts as I pile split wood in my arms, carrying it through the garage and stacking it as neatly as I can. My parents did not ask me to do this. I volunteered without really knowing why. My cheeks grow red, huffing and puffing. My arms hang loose at my sides as the great pile does not grow smaller, just flatter bit by bit. After a few hours, my mother tells me that lunch is ready, and she's made me some special treat. A pair of manwiches stare back at me on a big white plate. We never eat gimmicky food like this. No soda, no sugar cereals. It's really just a sloppy joe. All sweet ketchup sauce and ground meat on a soft bun. Something I might find on my lunch plate at school because we're on food stamps and they give me free food. And I don't get to choose and I'm just happy to have whatever they give me. But there are these manwiches, a reward for hard work. Just like in those commercials on the tiny black and white TV in the living room. A sandwich is a sandwich but a manwich is a meal. I chew on them slowly, more hungry than I realized. The sun is drifting across a blank white sky. I put the plate in the sink and go back to stacking wood. I know I'll sleep well tonight. I'm Marco, and this is Songbird. Welcome to the seventh episode of this new season. And yeah, these longer episodes are taking a bit longer to produce than I'd like, so just thanks again for hanging in there with me. This time I'm talking with Spitball's rhythm section, Mike and Chris, about another Spitball classic, Lord Loves a Working Man. Now, you're going to hear a live version from CB's show, and you're also going to hear a studio version from our Loho sessions. Now, I mentioned a big announcement last week, and it's all about those Loho sessions. While Mike and Chris and I found ourselves asking that big question, what can we do just after Molly passed away, I had this idea to release some of our music formally, the right way, stuff that no one's really been able to hear before. So Chris went back into his boxes of bastard tapes and he found the one from the Loho session. We had it very carefully recaptured at Video Express in Boston. Got a shout out to them. You see, the versions that I'm using in the podcast, they're actually very low quality ancient files that have been kicking around for forever. I can tell you, it is so amazing to hear the originals in all of their glory. So next We reached out to the best mastering engineer I know, Hans DeKlein in L.A. I was lucky enough to have him master both of my albums, and he's worked with the Pixies, U2. I mean, try to tell me someone he hasn't worked with. 
So he'll be putting the very important final touches on them so you can turn them way the hell up and dance like crazy people in your living room. Or, you know, there's this collective fantasy we had in Spitball that a kid that just got their driver's license would put our song on in a car and turn it way the fuck up and and drive into the afternoon or the night, you know, and we were the soundtrack for that. So uh, maybe we're getting closer to realizing that. So when we do have the CDs and the digital tracks all ready to sell and distribute, uh, I'll keep you posted. Uh, It's going to take a little while. 100% of the proceeds will go to a charity in Molly's name. And we're covering all the production costs. So hopefully this can actually make a real difference. So that is a pretty big announcement, right? All right, let's kick off this episode with the Loho Session version of Lord Loves a Working Man. Now, this is just mixed as well as I can do it on my own. But just imagine what it will sound like after it is correctly mastered by the one and only Hans DeKlein. I'm back with Mike and Chris again, and this time we're talking about Lord Loves a Working Man. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) Off the top of your head, what do you remember about how the hell this one came together? I don't remember much. Nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so great. (laughs) Blank. Just blank. Yeah. Yeah. I really, really don't. Okay. 
this is one of the rare songs that I had something to do with. Ah. Because I was like the last kid born. <laughs> Everything had already happened, and I was just sort of, oh, you already did all this. Can I do this thing over here? Is that okay? <laughs> so I had a day gig as a welder. But not like bridges or anything cool. I was welding opera scenery. I was welding the Big Apple Circus. And I always had these like burn holes on my jeans and my boots because these little tiny hot pieces of steel would pop off and burn through things. And if you're not careful, burn you. And I had a welding jacket that said art on it. I thought that was fairly brilliant. And Molly, you know, could not resist just completely fucking with me with that. Uh, she said, so you really like, you go to work? I was like, I have to be there at eight o'clock in the morning in fucking Red Hook, Brooklyn, which is the the highest murder rate in the country at the time. Right. There was a methadone clinic on the corner and I had to take a bus to get there. So I was with all these junkies at eight o'clock in the morning just before they got methadone, right? Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And there were all yeah. these rabid dogs in the street, and sometimes cars would be abandoned, and then people would light it on fire, and it was freaking nuts. <laughs> and I said, but Lord loves a working man. And Molly just, she kept saying that to me. Every time she would see me tired or, you know, like grease all over my hands and, you know, dirty fingernails, she's like, Lord loves a working man. Lord loves a working man. And I do know that... However we stumbled into writing this instrumental, which I think is one of our greatest songs. Agreed. It came out of that blue-collar, tired, hard-working, honest day's labor. I know we were just goofing around in a rehearsal, and we were not practicing songs, so it was more of a writing session. Mm -hmm. And it definitely was one of those, let's go back and forth, let's go back and forth. I think that's pretty much how it started. It's you play something, then I'll play something. But then that B section, that's Molly being an arranger. Mm -hmm. da, 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 da. I mean, is there any like brain cells connecting here? Is this for sure? I did know that the title came from you. At the time, the title fits you to a T. Weirdly, not just because of what you were doing, but almost like how you were. You know, you're just, I, I don't know how to explain it, but just very outgoing. And, uh, you know, thinking back, it's like being in a rehearsal room, I, I just hear you yelling that title and laughing and smiling, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. I wish I had better memories of it. I do kind of remember trying to flesh it out and arrange it and, and, and that. I, I, yeah, I had no idea that's where the title came from. Yeah. I, I think, Marco, the fact that you hung at Baby Jake's, I think you and Molly developed a closeness during that period when I was beginning to pull away from Molly. Or not pull away, but when Spitball first started, I was I felt like I was super tight with Molly. Like we would go drinking 40s after rehearsal. And slowly, it shifted to Chris. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's probably when that happened. So I wasn't hanging around Molly as much, but you were. I was the new Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had to do it. <laughs> yeah. You're the old Mike. I was the new Mike. <laughs> well, yeah, you were the new shiny object. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> I did think she was funny. I did laugh at the jokes. So it took me around. This is a song called Lord Loves a Working Man.
think this is a surf song? Not at all. It's funny you ask that. No, I don't. I, w- I was. I. It's so weird because I was thinking about that last night for some reason. So I've got this killer surf compilation by a whole bunch of unknown bands that came out maybe, I don't know, five or six or seven, maybe 10 years ago. And surf embraces such a wide range of things. It's not just the ventures. Even though I don't think it's a surf song, it's got the energy and the attitude of a surf song. And I could so easily seeing it fit on this compilation. I don't know. To me, surf isn't necessarily about the the surf beat or anything like that. It's the feeling, the ocean, the waves, the intensity, you know? The thing I always think about with Lord Loves a Working Man is that one is just like Mack truck speeding down the road full speed ahead, you know? And so it doesn't sound like a surf song. And you guys know I'm kind of like, yeah, we were kind of a surf band. Like it was kind of a label to put on us, but it wasn't in my heart. As far as I can tell, we only had one surf song. <laughs> right. It's like truly a surf song. Right. Without right, right. argument. Yeah. Right. So one's all you need, I guess. I mean, I did this. I'll bet you you guys are guilty of it, too. Scott for Life had a little ska part. It depends. You know, if I'm talking to someone who likes ska, oh, yeah, we're a ska band. Yes. You come check us out. <laughs> hey, you like surf? Oh, man, that's our main thing. Exactly. Are you a vegetarian? Come over to the restaurant. You like meat? Come on over to the restaurant. <laughs> right, 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 right. You like peas? We got peas. <laughs> Pass the peas. So I'm going to throw something at you. I think that there are all of the songs that Spitball had before I joined. Coney Island Surfing, Scott for Life, even Sunshine Superman. These were all pre-horn player joining. Mm -hmm. And I look at that as like phase one of the songwriting. And I look at Lord Loves a Working Man as now we're in phase two. And I would argue that this is a surf song. But it's expanding on what surf music can be, because what is this song? It's raunchy. Yeah. And it's got this thunderous quality to it. The the basic measurement is, could this be in a Russ Meyer film? Could this be in Faster, Faster, Pussycat, Kill, Kill? If it could, then I'm going to argue it's a surf song. Tell me I'm nuts. No, 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 no. You make a really good argument. By that thinking, it definitely could be. And I would even throw Home Cooking in yeah. because mm. I do think that was a period and those songs kind of share that. Honestly, most of what we did for that recording at Loho, except for really, I think, Coney Island Surfing, was stuff that would never have been possible or even imaginable without you, Marco. Yeah. You know? I think the arrangements finally started changing after I had shown what the horn could do playing off the guitar. We had to kind of go into the laboratory and do experiments and then say, ah, okay, now we have this new equation. Now what the hell could we do with this? And I think Lord Loves a Working Man is the first example of, but damn, that's a freaking arrangement is the thing. Like that song goes places. That song turns a couple of corners Mm -hmm. in such a cool way. Mm -hmm. And it comes back. It's like I always say, like you feel the pages turning. There are chapters. It's not just a groove. It's not just a beat. It's not just a noodle that we sort of squeezed out into four minutes of something. That thing is tight. And it turns a number of corners. And what I love is that we come on like a truck, just like you said, Mike, but we actually save something so that when we're towards that last part, we're even bigger. Mm. It's like the truck got like eight more wheels. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, we got a whole bunch of furniture in the back and now we're, you know, we're over the speed limit when we're at the end of it. (laughs) 
I also feel like there's a kind of psychobilly, rockabilly that's also arguably overlaps so much with surf music that they're all one thing to me. I don't think you gain anything by trying to separate all of them. Well, here's a question. Do you feel like there's a psychobilly or a rockabilly aspect to drums and bass on this one? I never thought about that. Yeah, me either. But now that you say it, I hear it. Yeah. But it wasn't in my head or my thinking or my influences. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be funny. Try to sing your part a little bit. Let me hear it. For Lord Loves a Working Man? Yeah. I'm full on Michael Anthony, man. Yeah. Except when you hit that change, then it's do 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 Right. And it's funny because the second you asked me to sing our parts, I don't sing the drums. I sing the bass because that's what I'm hearing. (laughs) (laughs) But try to sing your part. Let's see if it's a rockabilly beat. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I guess so, right. You right, need to right. send a little royalty check to Charlie Feather. Yeah. <laughs> you, just some, you just played some fucking rockabilly. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that's true. I never, it's funny, I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. For what it's worth, I definitely remember sitting in Molly's apartment listening to shitloads of obscure psychobilly and rockabilly. Yeah. I was like, wait, 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 I'm going to play you one more. And it's like, <laughs> right, right, right. And they all had that beat. Right. Wow. I, yeah, I, I have to say her taste in music was freaking immaculate. Oh, you know? man. All over the place. Totally all over the place in the best way possible. Yeah. She turned me on to so many different things, so many things I hadn't heard before. Just did to, to stick with our Clash analogy, anyone who says Sandinista is the best Clash record is fucking okay in my book. Yeah. That, that says a lot, you know? Every Clash album is the best Clash album. Yeah, same thing with the Beatles. <laughs> yep. That's an easy yep. one. <laughs> this might be a, a throwaway question. Do you think we intentionally wanted to write this song, or do you think it was just screwing around and it kind of evolved into something? I would say the latter, but I would also say during those rehearsals, we jammed a lot just to warm up. We would start just making music off the cuff, and I wish we were smart enough to record a lot of those jams because we probably could have doubled the number of songs we had. I think that's right on. Molly was pretty amazing at coming up with killer riffs, and you know, you too, Marco, and I think there were a million ideas that happened in those rehearsal sessions, but then it was like, all right, okay, well, what song are we going to work on? And right. all that stuff is just gone. Right. Yeah. But, I, I mean, we could have recorded those, but nobody, we wouldn't have listened to it. We would have had a freaking huge stack of tapes, you know? How does that song go? Don't know what you got till it's gone? Yeah. Right. Somebody yeah. sang that. So a- after Spitball, I started jamming with this guy named Mel Gray. And every Friday, we would just hang out and improvise. And Mel would go through those. He'd, like, beef up the bass. He would tweak them. And they would sound good. And there is a certain type of person who would listen yeah. to the well, jam. Right? Here's the thing. Without question, one of my top albums any day of my life since the day I've heard it is Spirit of Eden by Talk Talk. Mm. And that very famously was entirely written and recorded in the studio. And it's hundreds of hours of fucking around. Yeah. And months and months, I think even a year of editing it and finding the arrangements after the fact. It's this great example of studio as such a crazy tool 
And the thing is, there's easily like 30 instruments in every song. Mm. They're all playing these little sparkly little, you know, here's a harmonica for one part. And here's this guy percolating over here and this. And the way that they bring it together is so masterful. I mean, Mark Hollis basically said, I'm done making music after this. Uh, fuck it. That's uh, all I'm going to do. Right, and he right, right. Kind of famously like disappeared for the rest of his life and mm-hmm. never really recorded anything ever again. <laughs> But this idea of, well, let's just fuck around in the studio and we'll edit it down. It's absolutely a technique, but it's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But you can make a fucking masterpiece doing it. Absolutely. (laughs) And you get so much good stuff off the cuff because you're not thinking. It's just coming out. Chris and I talk about this. Our playing, we always yeah. listen to each other. And so if Chris was doing something, you'd go, oh, 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 oh keep doing that because I got a thing for it. That's probably one of the bigger mistakes we made is not recording, even though Chris is right. Yeah. <laughs> Never would have listened. Yeah, someone would have just had a huge sack of things. <laughs> that they lost. Yeah, that they lost. Under their sink that they would, you know, propping right. up a cabinet with right. or something. So this is one of the songs that's also got a Loho studio version. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're mentioning how Lord Loves a Working Man came about, honestly, I think the Loho version just colors every memory I have of that song because that is my favorite thing that I've ever recorded in my entire life. I, I mean, for me, it's just got so much energy and it kind of feels like the wheels are going to come off at any second. <laughs> it's so much on the edge of that with that speed. If I listen to stuff that I've recorded throughout playing, I can always find something that I'm not like thrilled with or whatever. And on this version too, towards the end, when we're coming back in, I'm, I'm not playing the drums. I'm just playing on the ride cymbal really quickly. Mm. And it's completely out of time. But then it it skips forward and comes back in time. And I wouldn't change that for the world. Yeah. You know, it's a mistake, but it sounds freaking great. Man, it's so funny you say that because I was listening and I remember during that middle part. I missed a note. Like it just... It drives me crazy to this day, but that's how the song goes. Yeah, right. And that was pre-punch-in times. Yes, yes. You know... So I have a great memory of that session because we recorded drums, bass, and guitar first. Mm -hmm. And I just hung back. The three of you tracked those, you know, carefully because we knew we were going to do vocals later and horn later. So then when it was my turn to step up, instead of recording just one song, I said to Victor, the engineer, can you play all five songs? I'm going to play through like it's one take, like I'm at a show. Mm -hmm. No breaks. Mm -hmm. So I basically did five songs in one take. Right, Mm. right, right. Yeah. And I knew that it was going to make me somehow get into that energy of the live show as opposed to being self-conscious and, oh, how'd I do that time? Uh, Can I do it again? And it was more like, you got one shot, buddy, take it. Yeah, that's such a smart way to do it. Yeah, I totally remember that. Because then you get consistency through all songs, too. I don't know if it was smart. It was more just like this total gut instinct telling me, try it this way. It may suck. I wouldn't say it was smart. (laughs) 
No, I think it was smart, though, because the way we tracked it, we kind of just played it like it was a live show. Well, it was really good that the three of you were playing at the same... And the fact that it sounds great. Remember this tiny guitar amp that Molly played through? Mm-hmm. It was a high mm-hmm. watt. It was like tiny. It was like 12 inches. It was like this little thing. But it was cranked all the way freaking up. It sounded right. awesome. Right, and right, right. Mike had that giant Ampeg. It was like the monolith from <laughs> 2001 you were playing through. And my God, it was so cool that the tiny guitar amp and the giant bass amp and the drums all recorded at the same time sound it's so freaking good yeah they sure did the drum sound on those sessions is just killer and you know i remember talking to molly about that years later and saying how much i like those sessions and she was like yeah that's because the fucking drums sound awesome (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't you chris it was the drums chris that's right that's right You know what's kind of funny is, Marco, I think you were only in the band for about a year. Yeah, it feels like much longer. Yeah. I remember we recorded on the West Side with Kirk, then we did Loho, and we've got the CB shows. You just, you hear us getting better as a band, and you hear the songs changing. I think looking backwards now that we had entered this new phase of the band with this song, but do you think we understood in the moment then that we were getting better? It's like a child growing. You don't really know you're growing until one day you're looking your dad in the eye and you're on the same level, you know? Yeah, I think so. But the band was Molly's life. She put so much work into moving the band forward and getting shows and everything. And the dedication was just unbelievable. So much would not have happened if Molly hadn't put so much energy and love and everything into it. Whereas Webb and I, you know, we're a little bit along for the ride and having a good time, pounding beers at practice and everything, maybe kind of forgetting things and maybe not, uh, you know, this is a terrible way to say this, but maybe not being super aware of what was going on in the, in the moment and maybe not seeing the growth in the whole picture, but being like, hey, this song's really coming along. This is getting better, but maybe missing the big picture. Do you think that's right? Yeah, I think that's 100%. I'm probably guilty of just about the same thing. Right. I think that the only truly ambitious person was Molly. Yeah. Yeah. And we were very satisfied. Hey, we played CBs. Should we even wish for more? Right. You know, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. We get to play CBs again? Yeah. Wow. Right, right, Who right. Who could imagine? We tricked him again. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> So I want to paint a picture for the audience here. When we played, the center microphone in the middle of the stage was not Molly. I don't know how the hell it happened, but it was me. (laughs) And it wasn't like I tried to steal this territory or something. I have to believe that Molly told me to do this because I would never have done that on my own. The horn player is always, you're either on the right or on the left. You're next to the keyboard player or you're next to some other idiot. But you're never freaking in the middle of the stage. The only way I was in the middle of the stage is because Molly said, you should be there. I don't know. This is like one of those unanswerable questions, but I'm going to throw some stuff out at you. Molly has said to me really clearly, I was the only person stupid enough and brave enough to sing. I wish we could have had a different singer. Unluckily, I was the only person doing it. And because we started writing these, I'm going to say, sophisticated instrumentals, And I'm in the middle, in the front there. Do you feel like Molly was trying to 
get out of singing? Or just organically, we wrote an instrumental and there's no big explanation. I would say no, because I think she also saw herself as a lyricist. And she wanted to sing those lyrics. She wanted to get them out there. So I don't think so. I also think that the stage setup, I always wanted to be to Chris's left because I wanted to have that hi-hat in my ear. Right. That was kind of why I was there. And then you and Molly, I think, I, I, I think visually it actually looks better with you in the middle. I think so, too. It's the weirdest freaking thing in the world. But you know what? I think it was, not that we were making like freaking trout mask replica or anything like that but i don't remember other rock and roll bands having a horn player it was pretty unique so you in the middle and being one of the focal points i'll bet you that was a big part of it it was kind of its own thing i was just window dressing (laughs) (laughs) but but you know you were also no no no. i'm joking (laughs) you you were also very intuitively comfortable seeming on stage and deserving of that focal point yeah always brought great energy yeah i that was the right setup yep and molly and i moved around yeah for sure okay you were a hostage of the microphone i just stood there yeah, but you had to because we didn't have those hook-on microphones back oh, then. Oh, I would never be using that. But Molly always said to me, stand and deliver. And then she would always say, get on the horn and dial 911. <laughs> 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 oh, that's great. And I have to say, I did like having Chris's kick drum pump in air yeah, right yeah. at the back of me. That's not a bad thing to have going on. Right. Absolutely. Right, right. Oh, man. We played such good live shows. I would say I'm more fond of those than I am the recording process. Yeah. Come on, come on! talking so much about like CBs and everything but playing the Continental was just always such a great time it was always such great crowds we were always matched up by Noel with other bands that really fit well and I loved playing that place I remember when I moved to New York one of the first nights Molly and I were just kind of walking around and we just came to the Continental and we just stood outside and we're staring inside just looking at all this awesome rock and roll going on and just talking about yeah you know we need to get here we need to play here and hats off to Noel for all those years of supporting all those bands all those nights yeah 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 I mean that's amazing 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 and and the other thing about the Continental is it's at that intersection so it's all that open space at NYU and St. Mark's and I think it's Third Street yeah you know, the lights are bright, and that's a very New York look. Right, and I remember playing with Von Elmo there, and holy shit. Oh, my Those gosh. Chicks. Yeah. But we opened Chick up for Von ass. Elmo at Seabees. And uh, we did the Continental, and, too. And, and, oh, you guys, yeah. after yeah. I left the band, that's right, that's right, that's right. Yeah. yeah. We're going to get to Von Elmo. I have that saved for another conversation. Oh, good, that's another good, 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 okay. good, 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 good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny that eventually there was a place called The Living Room, but to me, I always felt like The Continental was our living room. Yeah. We were so freaking comfortable there. I remember very well those minutes before we would go on and the other band was just finishing, and we were really 
I think whatever beefs we had with each other or just whatever, it just melted away in that little backstage. Yeah. And when we stepped out, do you remember when we stepped out in those white jumpsuits that we had yes. from the yeah. wedding? Yeah. I know Noel didn't know we were doing this. He was just like cracking up. <laughs> <laughs> I liked seeing his face. Right, right. And you knew at the Continental that when someone canceled, we kind of felt like we were the first call. Hey, someone canceled. Can you guys play in like an hour? Yeah. In any other place, I think we might have given them a little attitude or something. Of course, Uh, we're coming. Yeah, for sure. I love playing the Continental, man. It was easily my favorite place to play in New York. I mean, were there monitors? It was kind of hard to hear yourself there. Yeah. But you just went out on good intentions and that's all you needed. I have a recording somewhere that has my maybe my favorite compliment that I've ever gotten. I, I don't remember what the song was, but we ripped through it and we finish. You hear the crowd applause. And then maybe two seconds later, you hear some guy in the back going, that's rock and roll, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that is like my favorite thing. <laughs> New York. Yes. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. 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 Now I know why I want to call us the Fab Four. Do you guys remember Robert Bruton introducing us at Continental? And one time he was like a pirate or something. He's like, here they are, spitball. But then one other time, and this was my favorite, he said, here they are, Paul, George, Ringo. Oh, I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. It's just spitball. <laughs> and then we came out. Yes. Yeah. See, oh this proves we're the fucking Fab Four, right. according to Robert Bruton. Yeah. And that's all that matters. It's all that matters. Oh, man. That's great. He was our mascot. Yeah. I have it in a recording somewhere, and I have to find this where he was getting pushed around a lot in the front of the stage. And in between songs, he just jumped on stage and grabbed the microphone and was like, knock it off. <laughs> now, can you please just visually describe our mascot, Robert Bruton, yes. to the audience so, who doesn't have the pleasure of having met him? Right. So Robert, you know, he was an older guy. I worked with him at the Strand, kind of long, grayish hair, kind of stringy, and just super, super smart, well-read guy, out every night getting loaded, having a good time. Uh, he had some sort of backstory that nobody knew. He was born to a pretty good family, and he went in a different direction. I had to fire someone. She was a junkie and she was shooting up at work and just kind of walking around with blood and she was HIV positive and gave her a million, please just clean up because, you know, you fire the person, they lose their health insurance. Yeah. You know, it got to the point where she was just really putting other people in danger. It just came to the day where that had to happen. And I remember I went to a bar afterwards, Robert knew the whole thing. And I clearly remember being head down on the bar crying and Robert just had his arm around me the whole time, you know, and just sat there with me. Perfect thing at the perfect time. He was sort of the mayor of the East Village. Absolutely. Didn't have a lot of teeth. Yep. (laughs) He's probably in his 50s at the time, but he looked like he was in his 70s. Yeah. Yes. Super funny, too. Great sense of humor. Wouldn't it be funny if we found out he was, you know, a Romanoff or something? (laughs) (laughs) I would not be surprised. Right. Right, right. Absolutely. It would explain some things. <laughs> oh, man. We're going to talk about him when we get to uh, Mercury in retrograde, by the way. Good. I remember what he said about that. That was really beautiful. Okay. Happy birthday to Amelia, who's uh, one of our best fans. Thanks, Tracy and my brother, for coming. This is a song called 
Lord loves a working man. Pretty eclectic uh, fans we had. Off the top of our heads, any show, Robert Bruton is there. Yeah. Do you remember, they were sort of like the Sid and Nancy of the Mars bar. Amelia, Gary's girlfriend. Yes. Amelia was at every freaking show. Bleached, bottle blonde, always in like tiny little leopard spot something. All right, so who else do you remember? Uh, Carrie? Does that ring a bell? Some dude who was always dancing in front of the stage. I do remember that. This is a little bit to the side, but I remember we played that first street festival. And a buddy of mine who, big jazz guy, kind of seen it all and everything, took him forever to come and see us. He was like, yeah, whatever. You know, he grew up in New York. He's like, yeah, another jerk with a band. He loved it. He, he absolutely loved it. And I remember coming off stage after that show, and there was an older guy in a wheelchair at the back of the stage, and he was smiling and looking at me, and he handed me a dollar bill. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yes. Oh, that's cool. There was this uh, fantastic rockabilly bass player named Scott Kitchen, and Scott would come out, and he dug us, and he was always really nice to me and always appreciated that. His shirt's were fantastic. Oh, yeah. Always oh, cool. Yeah. The Western shirts with the piping yes. and the dice. <laughs> yeah. By the way, he wrote to me. He listens to the podcast. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, cool. He really, awesome. He really enjoys this uh, look back. So I remember the shows were always a little like disappointing because certain people didn't come out. Right. I do remember this. My friend John Kay, he's like Molly, just exquisite taste in music. And he came to a few shows. And when John told me he liked the band, it was sincere. And it also was, okay, this guy's got taste. And he's saying it. It just makes you feel like, okay, yeah. we're on the right track. He came to see us at street level, didn't he? Yeah. yeah I remember that. <laughs> Those early shitty shows. Yeah, right, right, right. And, you know, I do remember that time in the East Village in New York was, you know, it was a pretty cool music scene. And I definitely remember, like, going to see Scott's band and going to see other bands. Bands. That was part of the thing. You know, you check out someone else's band and then they come check you out. So yeah. it was pretty tight. Real camaraderie. Yeah. I loved that any of the really famous people at the Mars Bar, you know, Norman and Algus from Swans, Jim Thurwell. Yeah. They kind of didn't have an excuse. If you were playing CBs, it was like a hundred yards away. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't going to get charged at the door. If they had to fucking pay to get in, something's wrong with the universe. Right. So one of my high points, I mean, I love Algus and Norman. I mean, just such great people. I actually did some weird, like, playing in, in Vincent, the drummer from them. Vincent's basement in Queens. I played my horn through amplifiers and distortion and stuff. Um, that was really <laughs> unknown and, and very fun. But one of the greatest moments for me is when Jim Thorwell came up to me. He's like, I think I know what really weird scale you're playing in that. Um, Sunshine Superman song. Is that like a Phrygian scale? Like, what are you doing? And I'm very curious about it. And I like that you're doing that. And I was like, I have arrived. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Just knock me over, roll me down the street. Uh, life could now be over, right. and that's okay. Right, right, right. <laughs> Didn't he play under the name Fetus or sometimes yeah, yeah, go that's by? Him. He's yeah, got like yeah. 40 different band names. You know who he tours with now? The The, like their buddies. Oh, you're kidding. No way. Mar he, really? he plays keyboards in The The for like the last, well, whenever they did tour. Wow. Yeah, they're old buddies. 
Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Oh, you know, cool. he does like the music for Archer and all this stuff or whatever. Oh, no way. He does like major uh, TV stuff. Oh, very yeah. cool. I'm yeah. this nerdy guy from Ohio. How did I fall into that scene or even being around that scene? You know, uh, I will say this, though. Algus and Norman from Swans came t- not because of me, because Molly told them to. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. That yeah. I do know. Yeah. They yeah. were Molly Connects that I luckily got to buddy up with afterwards. <laughs> Hi, I'm with Molly. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Can I be cool? <laughs> Molly drove so much of the people who came to our shows. Yeah. Do you remember Martina, German girl from First Street? Kind of um, thin uh, brown hair. She bartended briefly in the Mars bar. Martina was often at our shows too. We're still friends. Wow, very cool. One of my most famous quotes from the Mars bar. I was joking with her. I said, Martina, I'd like a martini in a dirty glass. (laughs) (laughs) And she leaned over the bar and she's like, Marco, I must tell you, all the glasses are very dirty. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) All of the glasses are dirty. Yes, exactly. What do you expect? What is an honest day's work? And how do we know that we've busted our ass long enough? And who knows if working harder actually gets results? What if we just work smarter? Grinding and grinding, hustling and hustling. Does it really get us somewhere? Or is it just a way to convince ourselves we're going to get somewhere? How many times are we given that sage advice, just do the work? There's great comfort in that, knowing that tomorrow you'll wake up and give it one more shot. All the same, so many great things happen by chance and so randomly. Maybe we're all on the same train and we're all trying to leave the station to get from A to B. Now, some of us get free tickets. Some of us have tickets we had to pay for. Some never even make it on the train. All right, songbirds. This is the place where I tell people where they can find us. We're on all your favorite podcasting platforms, and even ones you've never heard of. Or you can just go to songbirdpodcast.com. That's the only place where you can find the show notes. I'll be sure to add some nutty spitball artifacts on this one. If you're interested in the music I make, just search for Martin Ruby, that's the band name, on Bandcamp or Spotify or iTunes and the rest, or just go to martinruby.com. So my new album, Jacob and the Angel, it's basically available as of the 18th of February. I think this episode will be out by then. It's instrumental, it's ambient, it's played on some instruments that are more than 100 years old, and uh, people are saying some very nice things about it. 
Next time on Songbird, a special guest all about tra-la-la and a one-night stand. Thanks for listening. Songbird is produced by Bittersweet Content.